Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, and I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Mm. It's actually my second cup of coffee, but it's still really tasty. Uh, last couple of days, I have been following my new plan of getting up and doing an hour of writing before I do anything else. And that's working out nicely. Um, I like getting after the writing with that early morning fresh brain. I'm also happy to report that there is a little bit of depredation from the pack wrap, but not much. I'm just going to whisk broom that away. Oh, here was a stealth one that stuck to my shoe. I'm wearing my heavier walking shoes out instead of my little sandals, and that makes a difference as well, because then it just goes into the thick soles of these shoes. And I can grab them out with the needle nose pliers later. Ha ha ha. You shall not outwit me, pack rat. So, yeah, last couple mornings I've been digging back into the fate of the Tala. I'm getting into a different protagonist's head. She said, very carefully not revealing who the mysterious protagonist of this book will be. Uh, you all will find out before too much longer because I've been working on the cover with the amazingly talented Raven. Very happy with the cover. I th it's really great. So I think it's the cover is actually going to be done tomorrow, but I'm going to hold it for a little while because I don't want to compete with myself on Orchid Throne release. So... You know, it's so funny the way, you know, that's part of being a career writer is that, you know, things overlap that way. Um, I'm so happy to get Orchid thrown out in the world, but for me, it's been done for quite a while, and it's not what I'm thinking about in the moment. It's, um, I've talked about that before, this sort of feeling where you're like always sort of living it not exactly in the now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now is is the fate of the Tala. Now is also the new shiny, which is um, actually going out today. Uh, it got a little delayed because Agent Sarah was working on the submission letter. Uh, Sarah spends a lot of time on her submission letter. So she got a lot of input on it and tweaked it and she sent it to me <laughs> she's very funny she sent it to me last night after i'd gone to bed and then she sent me another version of it uh, before i woke up <laughs> so she uh, really gets wound up and you know she wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks of things that she wants to put in there so which is part of what makes her an amazing agent that she is just so incredibly invested in doing that and i can tell you that not all agents put so much effort into their submission letters in fact i could tell you that i had an agent previously who just would basically throw together an email attach the document and send it to like the list of editors 
uh, I, you know, I saw the email and it was, you know, the work of a moment. Sarah um, really crafts her submission approach. And I feel like this is one reason why she is such an effective agent. Because she plans her strategy. Um, she also sent me, she had all three of her interns write a submission letter. She says, you know, good practice for them. And then, you know, she looked at all of their versions. Because she would, had complained to me that she was having a hard time writing the submission letter. And she wasn't happy with it yet. And she was still tweaking it last week. And I said, okay, you know, well, she's the professional, you know, take, take whatever time you need. So she, um, and I said, but, you know, sometimes it's easier to have someone else draft a thing and then you can tweak it. And she said, yeah, I had all three interns write submission letters and I, they had good lines here and there, but they still didn't say what I wanted it to say because she really wants the submission letter to convey that excitement that she has about the project. And not to simply recapitulate the synopsis and proposal, because all of that stuff's already there. So she sent me all of the uh, intern letters, and it was interesting seeing everybody's different take on my story, you know, and how they put together the pitch for it. So good practice for them, and Sarah took lines from various ones, but she sent me the one this morning, and I looked at it first thing, and I made a few suggested tweaks. She took one of my lines nearly verbatim, because she had, she'd had in parentheses, something here about this, and I would, so I thought up a sentence and gave it to her, and she used that, so that was good. So... Yeah, that'll start going out today. And I don't think good thoughts. I know you all are. I appreciate that. So it's good for me with that going out into the world to be focusing on writing a new book. Because that does feel like the one thing that I can control. It's... Um, I had started The Fate of the Tala, as longtime listeners will recall, back in May. Or at least I haven't worked on it since May. I'd written about 12,000 words. I'd written pretty much through the first scene in the, you know, using that eight-scene structure, which is how I typically think of the book, of all my books. That, that um, works pretty well for me. And really, you know, when we talk about scenes and the eight-scene structure, it's borrowed from movies, and I, it doesn't fit exactly under books. And I know that people get confused sometimes when I talk about it because they're like, well, you're, but there's more than one scene. And it's like, yeah, it's really more of a sequence. It's like a particular sequence that establishes um, a certain part of the story. So... That's what I'd written so far. So it's interesting going back and revisiting where I was in May. I'd ended up setting it aside to do Fiery Crown revisions and then uh, to work on the new Shiny. Yeah, so it had just worked out that way. Once I figured out I wouldn't be able to get this book, The Fate of the Tala, out by August, as I'd kind of hoped. I thought maybe I could get it all done and out before I went to Ireland, and it just, yeah, 
once I figured out I couldn't possibly get that done, largely because of the cover. I mean, that was the thing is um, I'd forgotten to schedule with Raven ahead of time, and she was like, I can't do this until September. So I was, so it worked out well for me. That was one of those, um, the universe working in its ways to say, okay, Jeffy, back off. So now I'm coming back to the book with fresh eyes, and I've been revising, and now I'll be working up to some heavy drafting with it. Good for me to be occupied with that, what with release and so forth. I did get a uh, email from Amazon today about the Orchid Throne, saying that they thought it might be relevant to my interests. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I might put that email as the photo on here, because I, I always think it's funny how the Amazon am algorithm works. Because, you know, they're not wrong. I am interested. You just think that they'd have a way of telling which are my books. They also ask me to review my own books, which I know that they don't really want me to do. The Call with Frolic yesterday went well. I think I'm going to do that, the podcast network thing. I need to... Uh, they sent us the contract, the term sheet, and I need to go over it in a little bit more detail. And Sarah and I are going to revisit it at the end of the week, but then I'll I'll be on board. So that will be fun. Apparently, there's a um, Slack channel for the group too, so that'll be fun to get on there and talk to people. And let's see. Nice responses to yesterday's podcast. I appreciate that from everyone. I had a, it was a nice day yesterday. I finished my stuff and, you know, put in my writing time. And then I went and had lunch with Terry, Terry Beth Shinoverett. She has so many names, who works on Bubonicon. We talked about Bubonicon some and had a nice lunch at Santa Fe Second Street. Oh, sorry, 2nd Street Brewery. There's Santa Fe Brewery and 2nd Street Brewery. We ate at 2nd Street Brewery. Sat outside. That was lovely. And then I dropped by Megan Mulry's office to annoy her. Because <laughs> so, I was... You know, I don't always drive around the plaza, the historic plaza in Santa Fe. I don't go there all that often. Uh, which is a deliberate choice many times because it's... I've talked about that on here before, I know. It's not easy to drive around the historic plaza because the streets are very, very narrow and there are lots of pedestrians, largely tourists, who forget that it's a working city. And so you have people step out in front of your car all the time. I've had people um, step backwards, like off the curb, because they're taking a photo of something and they'll step backwards out into the street. So you have to really try not to murder pedestrians. <laughs> um, and then, you know, so it just and tends to be busy. And when you live in a place that's also a tourist town, you just get in the habit of avoiding the tourist areas. <clears throat> but I thought, okay, well, you know, it's like four o'clock. I thought, well, I'm down by Megan's office and I haven't been down to the plaza in a while and it was a lovely afternoon, and it stopped raining, and I had the top down on the convertible. And I was working on this whole delight and gladness thing, right? I'm just trying to enjoy things. And so I 
took the long way in and drove around the plaza and it you know it is so beautiful I, it's just so neat to see and then went into her office building which is just a couple blocks off the plaza and I was thinking how neat it is that she does work down there and gets to be around that every day and she was busy but then she said but she was leaving the office soon she had to finish one thing and then she said come over to my house and have some champagne and of course you know that's pretty much all you need to say to me so I took a longer drive I drove up Canyon Road which is always lovely and took the long way around and then went to her house and waited in her driveway where her kitty Astrid sat in the window and stared at me quite suspicious of what my motives were and then we sat and had some uh, Sauvage Brut Rosé very good and it was funny because she has some old college friends coming to town. And so we were talking about the tourism thing and you know, all of the several of the things that they wanted to do, we were kind of rolling our eyes at going, oh, and she's like, oh, my God, I just don't want to go do that. And she said, but I should because, you know, of course, that's what they want to do. And we were, it, it's just funny, you know, like which things you enjoy as a local and what you enjoy as a tourist. But I pointed out to her, you know, that, so many of the things that you know that are the tourist things I don't do unless somebody comes to town and then I enjoy them you know it's, it's like oh why didn't I do this before and let's see what else so the only other point I had left over about big magic and I did finish listening to it. That was the other thing I did sitting in Megan Mulray's driveway was I finished listening to the book. And I do think it's a worthwhile read, worthwhile listen. I think what I take exception to, and maybe it's not fair, but it's the way that Elizabeth Gilbert frames some of her creative journey. Because she'll say things about, you know, like eat, pray, love, um, saying that she wrote that book to make sense of her journeys and her travels. And, you know, and she is, and she's talking about the creativity that way, you know, how you should do things for you. And I believe she did write that book to make sense of her travels. However, I also know that she got a six-figure advance to write that book in in advance of those travels and in advance of writing the book and that the decisions of where she would travel to um, were a, a group consideration that her editor at least I don't know if her agent too but several people weighed in on choosing the destinations what would make for a good book, you know, a good memoir about travel journeys. So it's not that I think that there's anything wrong with that because clearly I do this with my agent. You know, we refined concepts together, you know, like what's good to write about, what will people want to read, what will make decent money. You know, it's, that's, I, I don't begrudge that at all. But 
I kind of mind when she's talking about creativity that she pulls that out of the narrative and, you know, and makes it into the, I wrote this book because I wanted to make sense of my journey. So it's like, well, yes, and also because that was the project for which you were paid. Um, I'm still sorting out my feelings on this. There, there were other places where she, you know, I know, she talks about how she had made a promise to herself that she would never make her writing support her. And and she makes valid points. I, I think this is why I'm always going back and forth because on Elizabeth Gilbert, because I, I'll agree with her like 75%. And then it's like that 20, extra 25% that just kind of rubs me wrong. Um, she talks about how relying on the money, relying on writing, making you money, providing you with a living can kill creativity because it's too stressful. And I can see her point there. And I and I do think it can be a problem, you know, that a lot of writers quit their day jobs too early. And I will freely confess that it's been more pressure on me and on my creativity to have it be the source of income. It's it's far more, I don't know, it's both stressful and liberating to have your income come from an art because you have your fluctuations in income, you have so much uncertainty. Having a job with a salary and benefits provides a lot of certainty that can be restful. And so she has a valid point there. But she also said, says things like, you know, that she didn't have, she didn't um, try to make a living off of her books until like her third or fourth book. And until then, you know, she had always had day jobs, which on the one hand sounds great, but at the same time, it's like, you know, not everybody's fortunate enough to, you know, hit it big with something like Eat, Pray, Love. And and she said that was the book that let her go full-time. And it's like, well, that was fantastic. But, you know, not everybody gets that. And she she does mention how, like, James Patterson, you know, his books didn't gel. He didn't really hit until, like, his 19th book. And it's true for everyone um, but I think it's just when you bring money into the equation, things change. And I feel like she somehow sometimes treats money as if it is inimical to creativity. And I don't believe that's true. I do think that you have to find ways to uncouple creativity from monetization, as I talked quite a bit before about burnout, that that frees you from burnout if you have, and helps refill the well, if you have creative things that you can do that are not tied to money. But I do think that, well, I think that money is about more than Sorry, I'm, I'm sort of thinking this through as I talk. 
you know, it, it goes back to, um, you know, a lot of people think that the, that the line is the love that, that money is the root of all evil. And that's not what it is. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil, which really changes the line. If you're obsessed with money and nothing else, then that's a real problem. But money is, at its purest form, it's a representation of an energetic exchange. And so making art and having people respond to your art by sending their energy back to you in the form of money that they've earned because they've earned that money by doing important things in the world. And we know that they're important because they made money doing it, right? So they built a house or they um, helped heal people or they helped, you know, all of these many, many tasks in the world for which people are paid. And then because they put their energy into doing this thing that other people needed, they have that physical representation of that energy, of that effort they put in, which we use you know, money is just a symbol. The paper's worth nothing, right? So it's a symbol of that energy. And they send it to me and say, here, here is a little piece of my effort in return for the effort that you gave to give me this story. And I think that that's a beautiful thing that gets left out. So there's my um, esoteric musings on money and being paid today. I guess that's part of why I don't worry too much about piracy because people who are pirates um, aren't interested in engaging in that very real and authentic exchange. And I'm not interested in people who who don't want to engage in that exchange. So on that note, I'm going to get back to work. I hope you all have a lovely day. A wonderful Tuesday. Did I say that it was Tuesday, September 17th? I may not have. I should have a script, but hey, we know that's never going to happen, right? Uh, I will talk to you all probably on Thursday. So take care. Have a wonderful couple of days. And I will talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye.